Welcome to Third Culture Therapy, a podcast that looks at the unique ways our social identity and cultural heritage impact our mental and emotional well-being. I'm Leila Magrabi, writer, journalist, and host of this show. In this series, I'll be exploring how our multiple and sometimes conflicting identities affect how we feel about ourselves and the world around us. Through interviews with people from various backgrounds, I'll be delving into the vastly different journeys taken in the pursuit of inner wellness and find out what aspects of their culture have had a positive and maybe negative impact on their mental health. Welcome to the show, dear listeners. You've got a very exciting double parter here with my incredible guest, ayahuasca shaman and healer, Louisa Abedi. Her story is so rich, multi-layered, thought-provoking, and quite spectacular that there was really no way I could squeeze it into one episode. Ayahuasca, as some of you may know, is an ancient healing plant medicine, but it has gained a lot of attention recently. Whether you've heard Prince Harry talk about it or someone in your inner circle of friends, more and more people are hearing about the powers of Mama Aya, as she is affectionately referred to sometimes. And I know that many want to learn more about it. So coming up in this episode is Louisa's backstory to her encounter with ayahuasca, including growing up in war-torn Iraq, becoming a refugee, and her struggles with PTSD, addiction, before eventually finding healing. Part two will detail her intimate experience with ayahuasca, her first journey with the medicine, and the eventual road to becoming a trained shaman and healer. So strap yourselves in, you're in for a ride. But first, let me give her a proper introduction. Louisa Abedi is an Iraqi ayahuasca shaman and healer who trained in the Amazon jungle of Peru. Louisa left her birthplace of Baghdad aged 21 in 1997 after the first Gulf War and became a refugee in the Netherlands. Though physically safe, Louisa's traumatic experiences of conflict and long asylum procedures impacted her psyche for many years and she suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder. For eight years, Louisa lived in refugee camps and related establishments while battling the threat of deportation to Iraq, and the experience left her with paranoia and anxiety for a very long time afterwards. Louisa was finally granted permanent residency in the Netherlands in 2005 and was able to begin a life outside of the refugee camp, but the ordeal she had endured over more than a decade had left their psychological scars, which she went on to try and heal through various treatments and modalities including psychotherapy, neuro-linguistic programming, energy healing, yoga, and eventually ayahuasca. Luisa took her first journey with the ancient plant medicine in Portugal and saw a glimpse of why she was suffering and how she could heal. She felt a profound knowing that she needed to go on a longer journey with the medicine, and two months later, she had moved to the Amazon jungle in Peru, where she stayed for two years to train to become a shaman herself. Currently, Louisa organizes ceremonies where the medicine is legal, and she's currently writing a book about her healing journey. Before I welcome Louisa on the show, I want to say that I myself have tried ayahuasca more than once, and with Louisa guiding the ceremony. I can, I can and will certainly share my profound healing experiences with you all, but I have had so many questions asked at about this plant medicine that it made sense to bring the professional on the show and find out the answers directly from her. 
We will be going through some important safety protocols in this episode, but I want to stress here and now that ayahuasca is not something you do for a fun on a night out or something to take lightly at all. It remains illegal in many places, including the UK, and you should never, ever, ever take ayahuasca alone or with people who are untrained to administer it. The ancient practices surrounding ceremony are infused with wisdom and respect, and that is how anyone who wants to embark on the powerful journey with this plant should look at it. Louisa, thank you so much for joining the show. It's such a pleasure to have you, and I'm so excited about learning um, so much about your life history and your journey. As I mentioned, obviously, I uh, we've journeyed together before, but um, there's a lot that I don't know. And I think so much that our listeners are going to be very intrigued to find out about. Thank you, Leila. Thank you for inviting me to be here. Um, I'm very excited to talk about this. There are so many places uh, to, to begin. Um, but I kind of want to start from the beginning. Uh, I would like to know about your upbringing and like how you lived in Iraq and Baghdad and what life was like there yes. for you before the war. Yes, um, I, I was born in Baghdad and as a one-year-old we moved to Egypt where I lived for a couple of years and um, until then I experienced life to be quite nice and pleasant and just normal childhood really. Um, then we moved back to Baghdad in 1980, a couple months before the war started, and things changed once the war started. Um, it was very um, scary, to say the least, you know, it's very complicated. It's a, um, the way like war complicates life. Uh, my dad was in the army, so that added a little bit. Um, I was five years old, so there was very little understanding. And I don't think the way our culture doesn't sort of always explains to children what's happening. So we, I didn't grow up understanding what's going around because grown-ups don't make sure you're understanding what's going on. So I had to kind of figure it out for myself which created or started the trauma because I'm I'm trying to um, make sense of what's happening around me and I started feeling that things um, are not um, normal um, in a way or the very, very, um, um, like co my coping mechanisms, um, which I now look back and say, oh, I had all those coping mechanisms. So I started developing things like I couldn't sleep, I couldn't sleep in the middle of the bed because in my child's mind, I um, created the idea that um, I, I could only be bombed. I could only die <laughs> if, if, if they will, um, if the bomb will reach my belly button. So as long as I protect my belly button, I'm going to be fine. And it, it, it can only happen if I'm in the middle of the bed. So I, I never sleep in the middle of the bed and I always sleep in a way where I can like protect my belly button. And that created sort of a sense of safety for me. Mm. Um, so I look back and I say, oh my God, you know, it's it's all very complicated. And I, I did the coping mechanisms and added on that, you know, uh, TV was showing like frontline fighting and death and people are like in pieces basically shredded um dead lots of lots of blood um 
which confused my mind a lot because this is a human being, um, regardless of who they are and uh, they're the enemy supposedly, but still it's death and it's very, so it kind of created really a very complicated um, situation for me that I um, started developing lo lots of issues as, as a child for fear, a very high, high heart rate as well, um, severe anxiety, I couldn't sleep, um, and it continued like that um, until like the war finished or ended in 1988, the first one, the Iraq-Iran war, and we had kind of a couple years of peace. And then the Gulf War started again, the invasion of Kuwait mm. and then the liberation of Kuwait. And then I'd, that created a very different, complicated situation because I'm used to us being the victim. And mm. now now we're not. <laughs> but wow, I do still, yeah. yeah, now we're not. So, so um it's it's very confusing for the brain, you know. Um, what am mm. I supposed you know What am I supposed to make with this? And the things that you see in the media or the media, the Iraqi media at the time, is telling you something. While my inner sense is saying, I'm not so sure I can, like, live with this or I can accept it as a reality. Um, so yes, uh, life in Iraq was quite complicated, very very yeah. um, very traumatizing, mm, and, and I felt yeah. No, no, go ahead. Yeah, the, la the lack of explaining what's going on, but also the different layers and different situations from being a, like a, a victim where the world looks at you and you see the media and you see everyone is saying, oh, look at what Iraqis are going through because we are defending now the Arabic world against the Iranians. And then suddenly we are the invaders and the bad people and mm. like media is showing um, things that if you could get it in Iraq um, because it's not allowed to see how what the world is saying now it's, it's it's created a very complicated situation yeah and it continued even after I left Iraq and I became a refugee you know it's that 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 com complex um, trauma is not an easy thing to deal with mm. no yeah. I mean I can yeah that makes a lot of sense um, yes I want to go back to mm -hmm to your childhood in, in Baghdad for, for a moment. And obviously, as you've mentioned, it, it's mostly taken up by conflict and warfare. Yes. First with Iran, later with Kuwait. Um, and you mentioned that there was, you know, little discussion perhaps in the family about what was really going on. Mm -hmm. um, do, were there ways, were there, what, coping mechanisms or otherwise aside from the ones that you developed yes but let's say familiarly um were used to help in that situation yes from the family or culturally if mm -hmm. there were any well um my father has studied psychology so as but psychology is 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 psychology, you know. It's 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 not always always correct. But he had taught me things to be able to cope. For instance, with anxiety, he had told me. Mm. I know I wouldn't think it, it is good, but at the time, you know, while you're surviving, some things might um, be a solu a temporary solution. So I learned to sort of um, while we're being bombed, for instance, he taught me how to like sort like 
basically disassociate from what's happening mm. around me and sit in them. He, we would create together a very nice place, sort of a paradise. Um, and um, he would like, like um, tell me also just what do you want to do there and what are the things that you like to do. So I would be like um, planting flowers or or, or um, be in a very beautiful garden and like doing things with plants and it's very beautiful and relaxed and it sounds where um pleasant and there are like um birds and so i would create this with him together to be able to basically disassociate from the sounds of bombs and all the things that are happening around us and the smells of the smell of war it's the, all the distinct things that you have to like basically live with um so i started doing that quite a lot which is something that my father taught me um mm. he also used exposure let's say to um um basically really help me with anxiety so that for instance he he told me as a child you go to the room and you turn off all the lights so it's like pitch black and you stand in the middle of the room and you're like, you might like, it's like so scary, you, you know, it, until it consumes you. And then I'm detached for from fear and it doesn't wow. affect me. So it did create a strong child in a way. Mm. I managed to do things while we were being bombed that others couldn't. I managed to like sort of be calm and composed and um, able to not crumble you know in the middle yeah. of everything but it is because of the coping mechanisms he's taught me which is which was good while i was surviving it mm -hmm. it it did fire back later because <laughs> yeah <laughs> be, be i hear this association is yes. exactly the recommended course of <laughs> Life. <laughs> no, it's not. But you know, like I don't know what which which one would have been better. Me, really, you know, having to, oh, I was so I am a very sensitive person, mm -hmm. and it uh, um the, the um it was so hard to cope with the fact. So, for instance, I learned one of the things I learned as a child: if you hear the bomb, you should feel relieved because it's already somewhere else. But at mm. the same time, as a very sensitive human being, all I could think of is I'm happy that someone else died Gosh. and not me. So the comp oof. it's so complex. I'm happy that I'm not the one dying. Oof, oof, I'm that's... still in one piece. But at the same time, this happiness means I'm actually happy that someone else died and not me. And it's it's so war and and trauma and all it's so complex because it's like layers and 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 so what i'm trying to say is i don't know if it would have been bad that i didn't learn how mm. to dissociate in the middle of all that mm. well it's a survival it's a survival exactly. instinct and what if, things that you do under yeah extreme conditions are yes. different than those in non-extreme exactly. conditions that's yes. that's very much the case um yes besides yes. you know besides warfare i mean iraq has such a rich and beautiful history and ancient civilization um that unfortunately in modern day is you know has been overtaken by you know multiple uh multiple you know back-to-back conflicts but yes 
you know, I, I grew up knowing because of because of my parents who were of an era where Iraq was very much like exalted and put on a very high pedestal about yes. how beautiful it was and how rich yes. and how educated the people and just just wonderful, wonderful things. And I'm I'm actually so sad that um, I've never visited and I hope to one day because one of the very few Arab countries that I haven't visited. Um, so I wanted to touch a little bit on like your feelings about Iraq and maybe some of your mm-hmm. happy memories of of growing up there in in the midst of these conflicts. <laughs> yes, um, one of my happiest uh, memories about Iraq is swimming in the river because, like, um, mm. uh, my dad told me how to swim in the river. Not like so. The, so he, there was a swimming pool, but it was like very close to the river and me and my dad would not swim in the swimming pool but would would swim in the river and I really cherish those those moments where I've I've learned swimming in a river um um date palms mm. just just the sight of date palms and and he would try to teach me how to climb a date palm because like mm. my dad's families are like farmers uh, from Babylon and um, climbing day palms is something he did as a child. Um, springtime and how pleasant the weather was in spring just before it became really very hot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I can yes. imagine. Um, yeah, the, these are happy, happy memories mm. um, that I have about Iraq. Um, I, I think I've... In the late, late, like a couple of years ago, is when I started working on my relationship with Iraq. Is there was a bit of resentment inside me, yeah. and um, when we are together, me and my family and my parents would have a nostalgic moment, saying, "Ah, oh, Iraq." Me and my other brother would be a little bit like, "Ew." how what what are you saying is like i can't remember anything good but i started kind of trying to build the relationship with and the thing that changed for me is instead of blaming iraq for what happened to me i started to look at it as a fellow survivor iraq didn't do all these things to me it's done to Iraq as well so we're all in this together is what changed my relationship to it mm. um, instead of the resentment that I felt towards it and instead of feeling like oh it, it, you know I can't remember anything good for it I do remember us surviving all of this together um is what tr- like it's it's helped me it's helped me a lot in building the relationship with it again wow that's very powerful that's very powerful. I uh, seeing Iraq as a fellow survivor. Um, I can I can relate to that sense of resentment towards the country. I have been very privileged to not have experienced or grown up in conflict or, or warfare. My father's family, um, grandparents, and come from Libya, and because of my dad's involvement in, in politics in Libya, he was. At a certain time, he was in prison in Libya and then mm. he was um, tortured there and, you know, suffered. And there were, you know, issues, a lot of issues related to Libya yes. Yes. <laughs> for a long time. And to be honest with you, even a little bit to this day, I don't think yeah. I necessarily fully reached where you are. But actually, <laughs> this is food for thought. I was just angry with the mm-hmm. house. Like, you're just all you do is bring problems to mm-hmm. my life, to my family. Mm-hmm. 
you hurt my father, you hurt yes. my, you know, my fat. And so I was just like, this country is yes. just, you know, a source. Of, and, and you've made me really think now about looking at it differently. Because I think I do sometimes, but I, but I, I don't think I fully embodied that feeling, if I'm honest. I think I'm still yes. a little bit like, I'm still upset with it, you know? Yes. So I'm yeah, like, I- I'm upset with you. <laughs> Yes, I absolutely get it. I absolutely understand it. It does take work to stop um, feeling the resentment towards the place. Or fe- I, I was born in the wrong place, I used to say. I was born in the wrong place. Why didn't we stay in Egypt, for instance? As a child, I used to think a lot about why did we come back here, you know. Um, but it, it took some work and it's still a work in progress not to switch into that resentment and say like you did this to me mm. um, you know and I visit I visited Iraq a couple of years ago oh, and there wow. were places like for instance my, my parents uh, had their honeymoon in Basra mm. so they spoke a lot about how beautiful Basra uh, is or was um, so me and my friend took a journey to Basra and to um, to see it because we both had that thing of our parents in the 70s where big fan and we went there and we didn't like it <laughs> there was I'm sure it's very different now <laughs> it's very different it was very like grim and very sad place and it's Basra has been destroyed in the war like quite a lot um, oh yeah the the date palms they talked about I didn't see any of them and um so they talked about things that didn't exist anymore and we found it to be a very sad place and 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 we both were like reminded of how much this place has gone through. Um, yeah. So it was sad, but I started as 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 I said before, I started sort of seeing it as a um, a, a fellow damaged place. It's it's the, yeah. it's a damaged place, and and that's what it is. Um, there's a lot of healing that needs to happen physically for the place to be able to look, you know, good again. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we Baghdad went used to be very beautiful when I visited a couple of years ago. I was shocked uh, because it wasn't anymore. Um, so yeah. It needs a lot of work to get back on its feet and t- to be bright again. Maybe it happened in the couple last couple of years. Um, but when I visited last, I found it broken. And yeah. there weren't many l- colours. Um, yeah. Yeah. It was yeah. a bit be- beige. Mm. So it's 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 trying to reframe that that idea. This place damaged me. To I was in this place, and we got damaged together. Yeah, yeah. How did you, or what made you decide to leave, and how did you, how did you go about that? Uh. You left when you were 21, right? I left when I was 21. A um, couple of years earlier, my, wa- my, my father was imprisoned um, mm. by Saddam's regime. And there was even the talk about maybe even executing him, which Gosh. Um, luckily didn't happen. But when he came out of prison, um, he insisted on us all leaving but we had to kind of have a way to leave because we couldn't leave the country and he couldn't leave the country so we can't kind of but he had the idea that um he he didn't want any of us to go through um what he went through 
and it was like he 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 has a very good relationship with Iraq but he mm. saw at that moment that 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 wasn't um happening that that, that the the regime's changed um his relationship a little bit um and he really needed to leave um in order to be able to save the place so yeah. he started making the plan of um be, being in the opposition he needed to make sure we all are not in Iraq sure. anymore um so pay, paying a lot to get a passport um having to bribe uh, to take my name out of um the, the like so there was a list of where people could travel or couldn't travel mm-hmm. in, in a computer so when you reach the borders which is to jo- jordan they could look at them mm. yes and uh, uh, um in the computer and see if your name is with with the people who are not allowed to leave so we we, we paid to like cover up my name for a couple of days until i could leave so we left one after the other and um Ironically, um, I um, was the first one to reach Europe. Um, Why do you say ironically? Well, it was it was meant to be my father. <laughs> okay, he was meant to yeah. leave first. He he was meant to leave first, but um, um, he couldn't because my the, my mom and my brothers were didn't manage to leave Iraq. Okay. So he he couldn't uh, leave uh, further to Europe. So we were mm. like in in a middle station basically, um, and he couldn't leave further because he was like, I can't leave until um, my mother and and my brothers um, would leave. And culturally, this isn't this is not done. You 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 don't. <laughs> Of course, I mean, yeah, I imagine that your father isn't just gonna be like yeah. in the 90s. But my, my, my father is very, very, very progressive um, mm. in comparison to culture uh, generally. But still, it was a very hard decision for him. Mm. And we um, we hid it. We, we kept it. We Like, we didn't tell my mom, we didn't tell my brothers, we didn't tell my grandma. Nobody knew I was leaving oh. um, because we knew they'd be against it. Uh, so my father oh. and I planned it together that I reach, then we, <laughs> then we say, because it's like the consequences after it's happened, that they're going to try to get me back and then right. it's too late. So we kind of handled it together in a way against what is culturally acceptable and took the hit sort of of, of my mom and my grandmother really freaking out. So can you describe a little bit your journey? So you you managed to leave Iraq um, having uh, obviously greased, greased some wheels to get your name off of a blacklist to be able to cross the border. You arrive in Jordan. Yes. Um, then what happens? Can you describe your journey from there to, to Europe? Um, it goes uh, in steps. So you kind of start traveling between countries and you get illegal access to places so you you arrive somewhere and then you see how you can manage the next step um i traveled in what's known in the refugee world as a first class uh, in comparison to people um like like my younger brother um 
reached Europe in a cargo plane and my other brother tried the sea through uh, between like um Libya and Italy um wow. I I didn't because I'm 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 a woman um mm. they they chose the um most expensive and most um a convenient and easy way which is buying a visa okay to Europe so we arranged to um pay someone who would arrange a legal visa and then I managed to enter Europe this way okay. and then I went to the Netherlands and so most of it a lot of it is not a choice really uh it's yeah. um just this is what's this is what's available right now you know it's not like where do you want to go it's uh, but it was it was very um um complicated to do because of the way um women are brought up in the middle east the um i've i've never been to a supermarket before right. um, on my own you know i've never really done anything on my own i've always been comp- accompanied uh, by someone else who i've never even like paid anything i've never needed mm-hmm. money in my hands you know so everything gets done in a way wow. um, and and then suddenly i've got to like <laughs> behave like an adult and take choices which are very big choices you know and then I found myself in the Netherlands in a refugee camp um, wow sharing, that must share, have been yes. quite the shock to the system yes yes and then I started like getting because I I was brought up very protected mm. um, and media in Iraq is just you will hear what they want you to hear so you suddenly get exposed to how the world really is and what others opinions about us and all of that in one shock shock it was shock to the system and um there are things that were like very difficult um because as much as hard the war was um um and I can't speak for everyone but Iraq hasn't reached had did not reach poverty while I mm-hmm. was there so yeah. we didn't grow up like not 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 far, like yes I mean it was a bit um, during the Gulf War that things became you know scarce or you couldn't reach mm-hmm. something or you, could, you had to buy things in the black market or stuff like that but if you've got money you you would not miss anything so reaching the Netherlands and having to queue for food um things like that I found at the beginning really very hard um and I remember an old man who worked in the refugee camp at the time because I didn't eat for three days because I said, I'm not queuing for food like beggars. And <laughs> and he said said something like, you know, which is cliche, you've, you've reached here and many, many people don't and you're alive now and you're going to kill yourself with hunger. That's quite lame. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Way to put it bluntly. <laughs> exactly. And I thought, hmm. <laughs> and Good in point. a way, you know, yes, in a way, you know, uh, not like that, but in a way you are a beggar, you know, it's it's such the situation mm. has, you, you are mm. where you are now. And I had to kind of shed that sort of arrogant um, attitude and get on with life the way it is. That must be so hard. I think that, I mean, there's so many difficult elements to being a refugee, of course, yes. but one of the things that doesn't really get, I think, enough d- 
discussion around it or understanding. And I've reported a lot on refugees and and the crisis across Europe, but also mm. having spoken with individuals in my job as a journalist and this sense of pride that is taken yes. away and yes. the sense that yes you are of course grateful to make yes. to a large extent for the safety and the opportunity to be able to rebuild your life yes. but um being looked down on by so yes. many as if you are just a beggar who a should beggar, be yeah. grateful for anything is so difficult to yes. endure and and causes a lot of problems that people don't aren't able to kind of overcome or rejig the mentality um, yes. around that like you like you did um, but you know many people who become refugees were you know incredibly um, had incredibly good lives jobs money uh, security before yes. you know before they became that and you can't it, it's it's not easy to just switch that yes um Notwithstanding that anyone deserves dignity, no, no, regardless of, of what their economic situation is, whether in yes. their home country or as a refugee. Um, but yes, yeah, so you so you kind of had to make that mental shift. And just to clarify, during this time, mm -hmm. you're in the Netherlands, and your family is still in Iraq, or have they started? Well, to make we were, their way out? we were, yes, with the start. As I say, you kind of go through many countries before you um, reach your final destination and it can take years you know so it took years but um at the end my brother one of my brothers was in germany and my other brother was in sweden and my father was in england and my mother stayed in syria uh, for quite some time because she just said i cannot go through the illegal way of traveling um it, she just couldn't do that part and she stayed until my father could like in a legal way bring her um get yes mm, i understand yeah so we we um we have a very funny way of like where each one of us has a different passport <laughs> <laughs> you're now citizens of the world Exactly. And each one of us, because you know how Arabic is written different in um, how you, when you spell it. Yeah. Each one of us has a different name as well. Oh, wow. Because <laughs> each one of us spelled that. Each one of us, when, when yes, we spelled our names differently. We, d we never like really coordinated that with each other. Yes, good point. Yeah, you could. <laughs> well, I suppose you did have a fair few things on your mind um, at the time. Yes. So, understandable. <laughs> yes. Um, so you you've described, we know you said that the process to get asylum took eight years, which is a very long time. Yes. Were you living during, in refugee camps this whole time? Yes, you transfer from one type to the other and you end in a sort of a house, but it's like a refugee house where like um, four or five, depends how big the house is, mm. um, refugees live in the same place. <clears throat> and were you allowed to work during this time or to study? No. So for eight years you were doing um you aren't officially not allowed to do anything but um you do build up resilience and ways of doing things mm -hmm. um so i did learn the dutch language um on my own i did the exams on my own um i finished my master's degree wow. um while still a refugee um all like a bit like 
so legally it's not allowed but you find sort of ways okay um yeah legally it's not allowed to learn dutch you're no. not allowed to study wow. you're not allowed to go to school you're not like yes you're not allowed to study you're not allowed to go to university for instance um but my dutch was so good that they actually assumed i was dutch Ah, well done <laughs> and i had a driving i had like um i got a driving license as soon as i arrived to the netherlands so that uh, worked as an id right so, right i see yeah so can you briefly describe those eight years of life how it was for you what how you coped what were the challenges physically psychologically like, how was it um it was very very hard it's 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 a complex situation because i do want the safety but at the same time i felt like a burden i'm not wanted mm. um um i felt oh they don't want us they don't like us so i started doing my best to become a very good like example so they could at least say ah she's good so i started like really doing my best and i had um filled my time with um volunteer work um studying as i said i learned dutch i worked on speaking it very good so even like i worked on my accent i'm trying really to assimilate mm-hmm. even yeah. more more um more so that i could show that i'm good but at the same time there is this ongoing anxiety that suddenly i might need to um be deported mm. um so you always I, I always had like ways of thinking on a plan b or what am i going to do if i have to um it never felt safe so it really created um a lot of psychological problems um a lot of anxiety um but while i am in the process i didn't give myself the chance to collapse mm-hmm. or to even allow it because i'm like fighting yeah is how it felt i need to fight i did i made a lot of um mistakes at the time as well out of desperation you know um things to try to survive um but once once so the the also it's not easy to live in the same place with other traumatized yeah um yes people so it was always a lot of conflicts and things going on if you're not um ha- if you're not having a meltdown the your roommate is right um, if you're not being deported your roommate is yeah uh, there was things like c- coming to um, get one of the girls to deport her at some point and her like trying to jump out of the balcony things oh, like God. that were happening all the time so it's there's always action uh, mental pressure um was there any sort of psychosocial support provided by the government at the time? Not really. No, not really. Um until someone collapsed, which actually for me did happen at some point, you know, I really struggled with um some of my roommates. The place was very very like chaotic dirty and I just like I just couldn't cope anymore and I had a nervous breakdown and I really uh, um, couldn't cope with everything that was going on so a lot was going on at the time and I ended up in the hospital in a mental hospital for a couple of weeks um, wow 
and that kind of brought a little bit of attention to the situation that maybe eight years in a refugee camp is a bit too long for people and um, so I started kind of like um, getting a little bit more uh, help let's say and that is like I had a little bit of psychotherapy and um, but let's say it's it's Psychotherapy is very complicated because the, the, we are with a, we are we have problems that psychotherapy does has not dealt with, um, mm-hmm. so it doesn't actually know what to do. So I I've never had a diet specific like um um thing like ah oh, yeah it's okay it's but it's it's a lot what happened so they usually sat in front of me and looked very confused into what are they supposed to do with all this? Um, but it was, it eased up, it eased up. So I, I got antidepressants at the time, which I took for a couple of weeks and I thought, I don't, I really don't like this because I don't think I'm depressed. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I don't mean to laugh at that, but it sounds, <laughs> I think anyone would be, <laughs> well, considered to be, everything you went through, but maybe actually, you know, I really maybe wasn't it wasn't depressed. It wasn't depression. It was just, it, it, there was PTSD, there was trauma, there was, yeah. there was, there was like, the, the, <laughs> I needed someone to tell me it's actually really very, uh, it's a lot. Um, what, what yeah. was going on, you know, and every human being could break at that point. Uh, I wasn't, I've never, I really wasn't, was never depressed. I wasn't like sad yeah. or, or I can't yeah. get up. I didn't have any of those mm-hmm. systems. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm a very happy person. So mm-hmm. even when I went to psychotherapy, I went with a smile on my face because I'm actually not depressed, but I'm just like, I'm very anxious. There is a lot of, um, yeah. trauma within me I don't know how to sit still um uh, I do have ADHD so I'm um, I'm all over the place I'm running around so there's a lot of things that were going on um, mm. but I got antidepressants and I didn't feel that it did um mm. change the situation for me so I just stopped them yeah well I mean it's a really good point actually you make because you're talking about fundamentally the trying to endure the unendurable yes. like why should you be accepting yes. of a situation that is so horrific yes. of eight years of your yes. life being on hold of not being able to work yes. of not being able to study of not knowing any day from one day to the next whether you will be allowed to stay or you'll be kicked out and exactly. where you're gonna go i mean why are we even actually saying that that is a depression that, it's, that's it's just, not it's a it's just a, it's an unacceptable situation, yes, right? Uh, and you don't want to be accepting it. Exactly. And antidepressants will work. Your chemical, you know, the chemicals are not correct in your body and they give you antidepressants and then the chemical gets corrected and then you can face your normal reality. My reality was not normal because I couldn't sleep at night uh, because I would think if I would get deported to Iraq and now my father is in the opposition... What are mm-hmm. they going to do to me in order to get my father go back to Iraq? How are they going to right. torture me? Or should I make sure I die before they catch me? So it's, it's, these are my thoughts Gosh, uh, at the time. So um, how am I going to make sure, you know, should I carry a knife with me? Should I, like, what am I still going to do if that happens? Um, because... It did have consequences to everyone else. 
not only me, plus like somehow death is something I grew up with, but I really didn't like the idea of being tortured. Fair enough. I don't so, never heard of anyone so else I was liking like, yeah. it much. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I. It, it, it was my biggest fear, let's yeah. say. Uh, d- dying wasn't my biggest fear. For, you, you drop dead, it's fine. Uh, you, the consequences comes later and you might not know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but but t- tortured, like, just, I don't know, maybe because of how my father used to like, kind of uh, emphasis, emphasizes the fact that you should not get caught because torture is really bad in Iraq, you know? So it's like these things. <laughs> you know, I'm going to have to make sure I die, <laughs> which is... It sounds very complex. It's a better choice, yeah, than yeah, being captured. So it's the the that's not normal. No, it, it's not. No, and no pill is um, really should make it normal. I suppose. Um, yes. What what were your if if not the pills? Um, what other what were your coping mechanisms mechanisms during those years? How did you keep yourself afloat? I kept myself busy so much. I didn't sit still, basically. I did. I achieved so much in those years. Uh, people used to be impressed with my CV uh, from a time that I wasn't allowed to do anything because they, it had no gaps. I just, I did. I worked with War Child as a volunteer. I worked with other women organizations. I finished a master's degree. Uh, I learned Dutch uh, before that. So I just kept myself continuously busy. I had no time to think mm. about anything until I got my residency mm. and until I was told, you're, you're allowed to stay now. Right. And I had finished my master's and I was supposedly going to go search for a work now and because I can and everything is now normal it that is when I actually really um started um being unwell mm. it all just like came yeah. up um I could I couldn't sit still um and I just had that idea something is not quite right mm-hmm. there's just too much um so I started smoking weed at the time and at the beginning I felt like oh, I'm doing some I'm doing myself a favor mm-hmm. because at least I can like chill yeah. and I managed to do life mm-hmm. because it kind of calmed me down but years later is when I figured out that like, I actually, I became a bag of potatoes sitting, like, lying down on the couch all the time, <laughs> doing absolutely nothing. Mm. <laughs> the volcano inside me was still boiling, but it was a bit, like, it looked calmer on the outside because of the smoking. And yeah, I had done psychotherapy, as I said, and I had, like, studied NLP myself to be able to... And I think what happened is that I'm... I started psychotherapy and psychotherapy has reached the level of telling me, you know, right, so you're disabled. That's what it is. Mm. This is a disability and just forget you'll ever be better. What we can focus on is to teach you how to do life with a disability. Mm-hmm. And somehow that didn't actually resonate with me or sit well. Yeah. 
and that no, disability um, being PTSD or anxiety and and that uh, PTSD and, and trauma. trauma yes okay. trauma uh, trauma so, yeah mainly trauma war so trauma, they were basically um, saying look you're always going to be traumatized and this is but, yes. but the best we can do sort of try and find a way for you to live your daily life with some yes. ways to manage mm-hmm. yes yes don't expect much of yourself mm-hmm. so let's design life in a way that it is okay yeah. um and you didn't like the sound of that i i didn't like no i didn't, <laughs> I didn't like that i was like mm, no that, that <laughs> same thing as like torture i'm gonna make another tour. <laughs> I don't like that. <laughs> Do I have another choice? <laughs> yeah. Yes, it didn't sit well with me. I didn't think I liked the idea of this is what you have. And also, I didn't like being an addict. Mm. I didn't like the fact... So I had a lot of probably expectations out of mm. myself. Um. And And... Being told, you know, that there's so many limitations. Now we're going to design life for you as someone with limitations, and the fact that I didn't, I, I didn't like being an addict. I didn't like smoking. I didn't like the dependency. But I felt like once I'm going to stop this, this volcano is going to erupt, and I don't know how to handle that. So I'm going to have to keep smoking in order not to. And I didn't, so I didn't like the entire thing. And I thought, I just really have to do something about it, which which started the journey of looking around, okay, what what can we do? What can I do? Just before we get into the, the healing journey that you went on to, um, so how long were we talking that you were in this sort of limbo state of kind of numbing yourself? Eight, eight, eight to ten years. Eight, eight to ten years and I'm not saying I didn't do anything in those eight to ten years I found a job um, I worked mm-hmm. um, I studied other things as I said I studied NLP so I started sort of while partially still being an addict and still smoking weed I started kind of um, embarking on on a journey um, to find ways to deal with my situation so I started as I said started healing um, a healing course, energy healing course, which which mm-hmm. brought up some relief uh, for me, and mm-hmm. it it actually really helped me. But at the mm-hmm. same time, I was still smoking. So I'd, parallel to all of this, uh, I was still smoking mm. uh, weed. Um, Can we just clarify what you mean by like addict and smoking? Like how how frequently uh, so and how often? I had so at the beginning for for many years it used to be something I'd only do in the evening once I'm done work or whatever my day Um, Mm -hmm. one or two uh, joints let's say and then on weekends the entire weekend Mm -hmm. Um, then uh, that lasted for a couple years so it does actually keep you functional or it kept me mm-hmm. functional so I would function during the week and during the day but it, it was a cycle of me having to wake myself up in the morning in order to mm-hmm. function again um, so three four coffees to be able to you know focus <laughs> and do mm. do do the day and then um, towards the evening ah now now I'm done with my day now I have to kind of get myself on the couch Again, so I'll smoke to get myself on the couch and sleep. Yeah. Uh, sleep uh, was an issue. 
Um, mm. So it helped with sleeping. So it stayed like this for many, many years. Um, and mm-hmm. I didn't find it as a problem at those years because I, I, mm-hmm. I'm living in the Netherlands and it's, 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 it's not illegal and it's not, you know, yeah. it's not weird. People can smoke on the street and nobody will tell you anything. So it didn't feel like I'm doing anything wrong. Um, and it felt like it's helping me until it actually wasn't, um, until I right. it started taking over. So the mm-hmm. thing with trauma and the thing with, with unsolved issues is once you sober up a little bit, it all come up shouting. So you need more to shut it up. So it becomes, yeah. well, I'm going to smoke in the morning and then um, because it's not pleasant um, and then trying to do the day while stoned and then it doesn't work. But then, you know, oh, while we're not doing anything anyway, let's smoke more. And then it's yeah. past 10 days of not doing anything, um, just going out for shopping and, and, and coming back. Yeah. Um, the, the, so the, for years it was a bit, like as I said, manageable until mm-hmm. I had um, burnout from my work with, with work at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, the the cycle of me trying to prove I'm very good to the Netherlands, it may, it, I was really doing very good. I, I had a very good job. Um, th- um, my boss had even political ambitions for me. You know, there was a term for it. It's like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a model um, foreigner. I'm the model foreigner who's doing, look, all what happened and here she is. Um, speaks the language perfectly, um, highly educated, has a very good job. Um, they started talking about me, like entering, you know, bigger uh, places and politics and all political political parties started becoming interested in me and like trying to get me on like which one, which one, this or this or this. And I found myself doing all that and trying to prove how good I am. And in the process, I just really burned myself severely Mm, and um actually to be honest this was so all psychotherapy or anything that i've done before that have never really said trauma as a word or ptsd as a word it's just yeah you know a lot has happened and as i said spoke about depression spoke about personality disorders spoke about all kind of things that might be playing a role in why I was the way I was, you know, um, until, uh, as I said, I had the burnout in 2010, I think. And my GP at the time was the first person to say, you know what, I really think you have PTSD. I really, really think you have a trauma and I'm going to refer you to, um, they call it in the Netherlands Centre 1945, which is treated survivors of the war, um, oh. of the World War II wow. um, in 1945. So they have more knowledge with war issues. And that is when they started sort of talking about trauma and talking about PTSD. And um, um, But at the end of that, I did EMDR, which to, to you know, mm-hmm. soften up. Uh, which which worked uh, with a lot of things. I couldn't sit in firework. Um, New Year's Eve was hell for me. Yeah. Uh, because of the noises and the smells and everything. So that that is when I sort of 
the end of this, the end of the psychotherapy and reaching the state where it was, you're go- we're going to have to teach you how to live with trauma now and me not liking it. And that is when I started taking sort of my own path and did NLP, did energy healing, um, did many, many things. And I even left to the Netherlands because I was convinced... Um, Maybe if I go live somewhere where there's no weed, I will uh, behave better. But it didn't. Yeah. It did. It didn't really work. <laughs> it didn't really work. You just found it elsewhere. <laughs> wherever I went, <laughs> you find it wherever you go, man. That, Within that, ten that, minutes. <laughs> it's one of those things, and yeah, it, it just finds you. <laughs> yes, I, I I did extreme things trying to run away. Uh, from it i i i cycled i cycled from paris to vienna and back um in an attempt to to run away from it and i found wow. it everywhere i thought you know i'm just going to try everything yeah um, to um find a way to understand what's happening inside of me and and to find peace and sometimes movement helped you know like continuously mm. cycling every day has helped but it was another way of just um dealing and coping yeah which helped a little bit but it didn't remove the problem um, yes which but bring one, brings us which, to but, uh, but one particular plant did um, yes and i just yes. want to say because i think given how like oh god your story is just so riveting and and fascinating and I, I really can't see myself cutting any of this down so I think this is going to be a two-part two-part um episode uh and so yes just for anyone listening um we are going to get onto the sacred plant ayahuasca <laughs> and your journey with that um so yeah keep keep listening in the second part Thank you for listening to this episode. Check out the show notes for more details about my wonderful guests, including where you can find them on social media. If you enjoyed listening to this, please do spread the good word, share with friends, family, cousins, and colleagues, and please, please, please like and leave a review on whatever platform you are listening to this podcast. Your support is crucial for the show's success, and a couple of clicks from you will mean the world to me. Go to my website, leilamagraby.com and follow me on Instagram and Twitter for more news on future episodes.